Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. If you haven't got a story, you need to find something that plays in that in that sphere. And it's usually about emotions. It's usually about creating some sort of emotional rapport. And those things don't happen immediately, but you can work on them. But the main thing is to avoid sounding generic. Avoid sounding like you're everyone else in that sector. You know, whether it's a cafe or a hotel or a restaurant. Because when I do the work with brands like this, it's amazing how many cliches and conventions there are. Everyone will say the same thing about the restaurant, about the hotel. How do you do it? And as I said earlier, it may not be what you say, it may be how you say it. But how do you create something which is going to be distinctive? Because it's not distinctive, you're wasting your money. This is Anthony Taskell. He is a trainer, author, speaker, strategist, lecturer, and an expert when it comes to the art of storytelling. Today, we will take a deep dive into how you can master the art of storytelling to build a strong brand internally and externally. We talk about the power of words and how brands have huge opportunity for telling better stories, how our language in leadership and business are very influenced by military words and language, which has a huge impact on how people perceive your business. We also talk about how you can use stories to scale your business better and much more. Before you tune in, please sign up for our weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, which is packed with more Maverick insights, strategies and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. Now, sit down, grab your favorite drink and have your notebook and pen close by. There's some great insights in this conversation on how to boost your storytelling skills. Enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about something that uh, it's very important when you scale a business, but you don't really or grow a business or just maintain a business. But you don't really think about it as the the business owner, the leaders of the business, the executive team. It's about how do you actually, you know, scale and evolve the story that's really the center of any business that starts. Some businesses uh, are really, really successful because they really understand this and actually how they actually both make this happen inside the organization and outside the organization. And for this, we uh, we have a great person in the room today uh, uh, and a, a person that has made his obsession or maybe life calling to tell stories and story and uh, the whole thing around storytelling and how you do that in every element of running your business from presentations to 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 workshops to how you communicate to your customers so it makes me a great pleasure to welcome you to the show anthony taskell 
would like to be known as Tess. Thank you. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no one's called me Anthony for a long time, so we'll, we'll keep it as Tess here in the conversation. Yeah. Um, could you tell you know the audience a bit about you know you and your work, your your journey, the, the milestones, and and why you think your, your approach is so unique? Yeah, I, I came at it from a slightly unusual path, really. So um, I studied at university. I studied Latin, Greek, and ancient history, and pretty much assumed that I was going to be an academic spending time with Homer and Virgil and Nero and for reasons which are too dull to go into I ended up looking at advertising because I'd loved advertising I loved movies I still help run a cinema in North London and someone said to me oh if you want to go into advertising there is this role which is sort of quite strategic it's quite intellectual it's about understanding how people make decisions brands all that sort of stuff so I thought okay I'll have a look at it as an alternative to studying Homer all my life and fell into a job in advertising, um, which is not an obvious tra trajectory to go from studying classics to working in advertising. Uh, but one of the things I did find that linked story, uh, linked classics to advertising were two things. One was stories. So I'd studied, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and the great writers of Roman Greece, and I was finding myself in the communications world helping brands understand who they are, what they should be, what's their message, who is their target audience. But I found it rather depressing, really, that no one seemed to be able to tell stories. And I thought, where's, why have we lost this art? Why have we, when we're talking about setting up a company or a business or presenting a pitch or a presentation, why have we reverted to this very dry, dusty, numerical way of communicating? So that's one of the ways in which I found a link. The other one was that as a historian, I spent a lot of time looking at the Peloponnesian Wars, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, still love all that now. And I realised quite quickly that they were masters of communication. Call it propaganda, if you like, but it's the same principles about how you communicate. How do you cr communicate to a big crowd? If you're Mark Antony and you want the crowd to love you, make you the heir of Caesar, you look at the sorts of tricks and rhetorical ideas that they use and you realise that's, that's exactly what we're doing now, what great politicians and speakers are doing. So in a strange way, that's how that sort of journey got me to where I am now. And um, you talk about, you know, that you when you started out, which is a couple of decades ago, if I don't get it wrong. And, and the rest. Yeah. And the rest. Uh, <laughs> that business was not very good at storytelling. And now there has been, you know, I would say there's definitely been, there's definitely been theoretical focusing on it from uh, you know, business books. And uh, there's a lot of different business books out there to talk about the power of storytelling. You need to tell the story brand and so on. But where, where are we then to today and business and organizations ability to tell great stories and really use stories to their advantage. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel that as much progress has been made um, as I'd like to think. So I, I still do lots of training for the Chartered Institute of Marketing, the Market Research Society, the Civil Service College, the Institute of Internal Communications, as well as privately. I speak at lots of conferences about storytelling. I was one yesterday in Cambridge. And I still find lots of companies um, and I won't, I won't name them to, to protect their, their innocence. A, a lot of them are still communicating in ways which I think are 20, 30, 40 years out of date. So I wrote the first book, the storytelling book, I think in 2015. 
And people often ask me, why have you written another one? Why have you written a sequel, if you like, now to use the movie analogy? And I think it's because I, I don't think the job is done yet. I, th- I still think there's an awful lot of companies. Because we created this culture, this adoration, this worship of numbers and facts, what I call in the, in the books arithmocracy. We're living in an arithmocracy, obsession with numbers and measurement and data and KPIs and metrics. Now, I know I'm not saying that that's all wrong. I'm, you know, I'm not like King Canute pushing the, the sea back. But I think the balance between having numbers and facts in your brand and your story, especially in hospitality, and actually telling the human, anecdotal, emotional side, that balance is all out of kilter. And you're right, there has been progress over the last few years and certainly 20 years, but there's a long way to go. And um, if we were talking a bit about, if we just go back to storytelling again and just maybe you talk a bit about how you define great storytelling and what the power of that is when you really get it right. Yeah, there are, there are various ways that I, I write and talk about um, storytelling. And for me, storytelling is about identifying and amplifying emotions. So again, I'll give you a little story, a little anecdote. Um, I do love films. Um, I, my mother was an usherette in a place called Southend in Essex. So I was always going to cinema as a young kid and I fell in love with cinema. And one of the things that I sort of found about the last couple of years, which you know has been terrible for everyone, but one of the things that I think we've all lost, which affected us all deeply as individuals and as cultures and society was not being able to go to a cinema or a theater or um, a gig and not sharing emotions with other people. Yes, you can sit at home with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife in front of the laptop watching Stranger Things or whatever, but sitting with 200 people in a cinema, laughing together, crying together, (gasps) jumping together, there is no substitute for that. And that's what a good story should do. It should tap into all of those emotions collectively Because as people like Jung said, we have this collective unconscious. It's filled with all these stories and archetypes and heroes and villains. It doesn't take much to tell a good story. So I think that's, for me, the essence of what good storytelling is. And um, what would you say that, you know, is there any organizations that really, you know, are you know, good at this or even maybe great at this and really are using it actively in how they build their business. It's a really a core fundamental thing they look at first before they do anything else. I think there are a lot of, you know, the usual suspects, the obvious mm-hmm. ones. I think Apple's always been very good at that, realizing that, yeah, they're in technology, they're in, you know, data, but they're also in creativity. And creativity is about, again, emotions, humanity, storytelling. And they've always... I think I've always absolutely understood that to create differentiation, which again is coming from a brand background, is one of the key things you have to do. How do you make your brand, whatever it is, distinctive and salient from the competition? You know, they could have done what Microsoft had done. They could have done what Hewlett-Packard, but they didn't. They created this personality and character. And I think just to sort of digress a little bit, one of the things I think that good storytelling brands do or understand is the power of personality and tone of voice and I write a lot about this in both the books um, and it's an exercise in the new book about this because one of the things and I I use this as a bit of a mantra so mantra alert everyone Um, I think we worry too much about what we say and nowhere near enough about how we say it and I think that's true for pretty much 
every sector, every country, every piece of communication. I've spent many years with clients, sometimes quite painfully, trying to come up with a message or a proposition or a benefit, trying to reduce something quite human and emotional and complex to something that can actually be quite reductive and dry. But the amount of time that my clients would have spent thinking about the personality that that's delivered in, or the tone of voice, or the personality, is infinitely smaller. So I spent a lot of time working with brands, saying to them, yes, we can look at your purpose, your meaning, your benefit, but let's, let's define those personality traits and characteristics. And I can give you one great case history, which I worked on. Um, hopefully most of your listeners will know the Royal Albert Hall. Um, I banned them from saying this, but they are an iconic London venue. <laughs> iconic being jargon, but I'll, I'll forgive them. Um, and it was their 150th anniversary in 2021. So I think three years prior to that, um, I did a talk at a conference and I mentioned the fact that my eldest son, who works in hospitality now, um, his school got invited to the Royal Albert Hall to see J.K. Rowling read from Harry Potter. I think it was The Prisoner of Azkaban. And there were 2,000 children at the Royal Abbey. And I ask people when I'm doing training, anyone give me a word to describe a venue full of 2,000 children? And obviously, you know, noisy, chaotic, loud. Until the moment that she came on stage. And then suddenly, silence. Because we, we respect storytellers. Again, the big etymology fan, the word author is the same root as the word authority. We give authority to authors. I was telling this story at a conference and somebody came up to me. She said, I really like your story. Thank you. She said, I'm the marketing director of the Royal Albert Hall. Everything you said about that is, is what happened. It's our anniversary in a couple of years' time. Would you like to help us tell our story? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> it was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant gig. And I worked. I did lots of research. I spoke to a lot of the senior people at the hall. I interviewed uh, some of the promoters. And they came up with a few lines, and so did the client. And we all thought, mm, yeah, they're all right. There's nothing that exciting. It's a bit expected. But I put a, I did a word cloud, and I said, look, here's some of the feelings that I've synthesized from everything that everyone's told me. And I put three words on a slide. I said, look, there are three E's. So one was eclectic, which means diverse, because they put on all sorts of shows. They have the proms, they've had military stuff, they've had politics, they've had Eric Clapton, The Who, The Beatles. They've done all sorts of events. The second word was eccentric. It's a very English institution. They've had all sorts of weird events, including something, and I'm not joking, called chess boxing. Look it up, people, it exists. So that was the second E. And the third one was I was talking to promoters in Cirque du Soleil, and they used the word electric. They said it's just got this electrifying atmosphere. And I had a slide that just said eclectic, eccentric, electric. And to my great surprise, everyone in the room went, yes, that's it. That's what we want. Which is, I'm not, I didn't expect them. I thought this is a bit, you know, far out for them because they were sort of slightly older male, middle-aged men. Um, and they loved that. And, I, and that for me has been... A, the best demonstration I've worked on of the power of the personality and the feelings. They all they all absolutely understood that those three words defined what the Royal Albert Hall was, rather than a sort of slogan that says, you know, 150 years of history, more to come, which is, you know, a bit yawn-inducing. So I've been long answered your question, but... But it's super interesting that when you presented to them, 
they knew straight away that was the character because even if you haven't really you know nailed it down on a piece of paper what the character is or what your brand character is and the feel has to people know when they see the words and I think some of the people I had on the show that is very good at this and also have very successful businesses that those really financial successful but also from a human point of view people want to work there and they are very good in the local community that the founders are often you know authors as well yeah, they've written yeah. about their business they are very clear about their visions they've written everything down it's part of the way of them to be able to articulate it better and better and actually often many of them have said when they start to share their their writing or their thoughts or the process with their their organization they help them to clarify what they have to become so they become a better version of that story yeah. all the time. One of the quotes that I use in my training, because um, I use a lot of writers and storytellers and artists and cinema people, is um, Martin Amis is a very well-known English writer. And he wrote a series of essays called The Campaign Against Cliché. He said, as a writer, how do you avoid saying the same things again and again? And we can talk more about cliché and jargon in business, which is a real bugbear of mine. Um, and he says there are three things you need to do to avoid cliché. Freshness. Does it feel fresh? Energy. Has it got an energy about it that, that makes people sit up? And then the third thing is what he calls a reverberation of voice. Does it echo? And I've, I've used that, that quote all over the world, all over my writing and lecturing and training, because I think it's a great way of saying to business people, people in HR, people in hospitality, people in retail, pharmaceutical, it doesn't matter. Whatever you can do, use those three as your guidelines. Because again, thinking about the Royal Albert Hall, those words felt fresh. No one had ever used them at the hall. It just wasn't the sort of lag. They talk about iconic. I said, stop saying iconic. We know you're iconic. It's not adding anything. Secondly, it has a sort of energy, because when you look at those words, you go, yeah, there's a sort of energy and momentum. And reverberation of voice. When you've finished thinking about that, does it linger in your mind? Because one of the things I talk a lot about, about how story works in the brain, for me, the three things that are, are linked are storytelling, emotion and memory. So if you think about your memory, most of your memories are based on emotions. And most of your memories are based on stories which created a certain emotion when you were happy, when you were sad, when you were frightened. So for me, again, those three things all sort of link up and as you said, with authors and other business owners, if they can avoid using those cliches and using that jargon, there's a much better chance I think they'll have a, a brand, a story that, as you say, you can scale up. And can you give an example of, you know, jargon? We, we use it all the time in business. And I was thinking as you were saying that, you know, you know engagement, KPIs. Yeah, I mean, KPIs and metrics. I'm, I'm, do you know what? I will have a, I'll have a rant about engagement. You've, you've provoked me now. Michael, so I will do that. I mean, it's not the. There are many, many worse examples. I, I don't like when people reach out, for example. I don't like the only people who should ever reach out are in Motown songs. But engagement is one of those words that's that's got a life of its own. And because part of me works in the branding and communications world, I I bump up against engagement a lot. Clients saying we need to increase our engagement, we need to measure our engagement. And the reason I don't like it is, I think, as with all cliches and jargon, it's lazy and it's meaningless. Um, the word cliche comes from the French word meaning to click, which means to wear away at something until there's nothing left. And that's what cliches are. 
And my problem with engagement is, I won't name this client for obvious reasons. The client said, I don't measure engagement. And I said, well, what are you measuring? Well, engagement. I said, no, you, that's just a generic term. What are you actually? So I have done this in workshops. I think we came up with seven different ways of describing engagement. You know, did you like it? Were you emotionally involved in it? Was it memorable? Is it the sort of thing that you talk about or share? Now, those things are things you can ask people in the real world, but you can't ask them to measure engagement. So I get worried when these, these bits of language just take over. And I was at this conference yesterday for sort of L&D and HR people. And again, there was an awful lot of that sort of very learning and development, engagement. And, and I'm thinking, bring it back to the human stuff. You know, use words which everyone understands, which are, again, emotional, and which no one will be embarrassed to say. Because one of the things about jargon, and this happens a lot when I do this as an exercise, and it's in, one, it's in the book, Junk the Jargon, People often come into the into the exercise and say, do you know what, I've been in this company for six months or a year, and there are expressions that people use, and I still don't know what they mean, and I'm too embarrassed to ask. Now, that's not a great, it's not a great way to run a company, is it? So. Yeah, but also, one of the things you, you, you have in the, the book, you also talk about the language we use, the word we use, and you refer to the military. Yes. Like, especially if you take the marketing angle. And I was thinking as I was reading that, that's really, you know, I have to catch myself because that's how we talk about our organizations as well. Like almost like armies that go and defeat something. There's a yeah. battle we need to win. And that's actually not very positive when we think in this world where we have, you know, we have a big role to play to, you know, to keep a sustainable business, but also solve problems for humanity, society, the planet then we are not in war with each other. You've put it beautifully. And you, as you say, it's the beginning of the first book, the storytelling, but I have this long rant about the militarization of marketing, as I call it. And it's a strange metaphor, isn't it? You're right. It's about well, how have we ended up? So I have, a, I have a bit of a theory, which is that marketing is, is what we do now that most of us don't do war. And I've realized what's going on in Eastern Europe at the moment. But I think that language has become embedded. So if you look at words like strategy, it comes from the ancient Greek word strategos, a general. Tactics, again, another military word, meaning arrangement, the arrangement of your troops. Um, your audience, the group that you talk to, we call them a target. We've forgotten that, haven't we? What do you do with a target? You hit it. Again, it's very odd sort of language. And there's more. Slogan is a Gaelic word, meaning a battle cry. So there's loads of these military words. And again, I'm just trying to get people to say, just pull back from using them. Because a lot of people, and again, I'm going to be rude about management consultants. Sorry, any management consultants listening. Um, but they have a tendency to use this blown-up language as a way of basically charging lots of money. And they'll use all these words, but when you dig beneath the surface, a lot of the time it's, it's not, there's nothing very interesting there. But by deploying, which is also a military word, deploying a lot of this language, it makes them sound you know, more important, more influential. So part of my reason for looking at language all the time, not just with the Royal Albert Hall or with military language, is... Sometimes the the real secrets lie beneath the words that we that we use, and I'm I'm just fascinated by that. So it's very interesting here on the, the show. We just to confirm that we had uh, Tom Barton from Honest Burger 
Yeah. And he uh, he talked a lot about the words they used. So they were trying to avoid to call them general managers, but actually call them restaurateurs yeah. because that's the principle of the word. They're not managers. They're not running some kind of team and army. And he said they talked about burning down the Christmas tree, so that's the old <laughs> top down. And he yeah. said, and we have this powerful word over the door that's called honest, and we have to live up to it. So he used words was very very important for him and the meaning of them and in the, in the organizational context. Yeah, there's a, there's a word that gets thrown around a lot, which is authenticity. And again, I, I'm I'm slightly un, uncertain about it, but I think that the root of it is right, which is being authentic just means being honest and transparent and talking to people honestly about what you are, who you are, and again, being honest about your mistakes. Now, if you allow me a little digression into behavioral economics, um, there is something which is called the pratfall effect. And the pratfall goes back to silent comedy. It's somebody who deliberately trips up and falls over, and it's very funny. But there's a, a really interesting psychological principle which I talk about and I apply to brands called the pratfall effect. And it's based on an experiment where um, a speaker goes up onto a stage. And this is done deliberately. As they go up onto the stage, they fall over. And everyone in the audience goes, oh, what's happened? But they get up again, they deliver their speech. And then the audience are asked to rate the speech. What do they think of that? Yeah, you can see where this is going. They're asked to rate the speech, rate the content, rate the speaker. The second group, a control group, nothing happens. He just goes up and gives a speech. Guess what happens? They rate the person who falls over more highly. And it's because we are much more acceptant and tolerant of mistakes and failure. So when brands say we must be perfect and infallible, no. Don't. No human being, you know, so Ur is human and something Augustine said. You know, we, we actually empathize with, with people who are being honest, who admit failure. If you'd learn from your failure, even better. But don't try and try and be perfect. And I think again some brands fall into that mistake, particularly when they're setting out and they're trying to scale their story, they fall into that trap of saying we must seem to be perfect. Don't. Yeah, and I guess especially as you start the business, startup or early years, nothing is perfect. Absolutely. It's chaos. It's going to be like that. But be honest about it. And, and both for your internal communications, as much as anything, just to say, look, there are going to be screw-ups. There are going to be accidents. There are going to be things we don't expect. But that's normal. That's just how businesses work. Also, I, I talk about this from a human point of view. You know, humans... One of the reasons I don't like metrics and KPIs all the time is the assumption that all human behavior can be reduced to metrics. Human beings, I say this a lot, are messy, unpredictable, emotional, and chaotic. I'm not telling your listeners anything new, am I? But we create this myth, I think, in business that everything should be perfect, that people should be, but it's, it's, it's pointless. And it's actually very, as I say, it's very counterproductive, much better to be honest. You just said a word there I would like to hang on. Um, myth in in the world, and especially in the world of business and how we think this is how you should do, this is how you should grow your company, this is how you should manage employees. And maybe you've seen the same where you have companies that really understand how to use story as a powerful tool, both internal and external. They don't believe there is a specific way of doing it. They get inspiration from any place and then they find their own way to do these things that they're very clear about their story is very different from Apple or Ben and Jerry's or 
the restaurant down on the corner. They need to find their own algorithm, if we can yeah. say so. Algorithm. Yeah. I again, uh, it's been at least five minutes since I've mentioned etymology and words. So um, again, as a as a classic scholar, the word mythos, which is the Greek use the word the Greeks use the word myth, story, fable. That was all the same for them. And clearly, there is a, a lot of overlap. Sometimes stories are myths. They're partly true, but they're partly legends. And again, I don't want to sort of dismiss truth because obviously, you know, we need that. But a lot of stories are are just compelling because they have this mythical, universal, relatable nature to them. And I think some of the great brands and and the reason why those ones that you've mentioned or, you know, others that we can talk about like Virgin or Innocent or whatever, the reason those great brands have a story is it's sort of almost like a mythical. So the whole thing about Apple and the bite and you know, the idea that actually we can all be creative, the fact that Virgin, their myth is that actually we want to go into markets that look like they're perfect, but do it differently and better and in a slightly rock and roll way. You know, that's I think that's what, what great brands naturally do. And I think that's what storytellers naturally gravitate to as well. What is your view, you know, these businesses that get it right, what is their biggest barrier? What what for them to keep on being good at it, because you, of course, when you're good at something, sometimes you maybe lose the, the focus. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's one obvious barrier, which is scale, which is often, and I've worked in, I used to work in ad agencies, I worked at small ones, big ones, and um, often when a small group of people come together with a story, a myth, a vision, everyone shares it, everyone buys into it. Once companies grow, and the psychologist Robin Dunbar, it's called Dunbar's number, he says, if you go back to our evolutionary history, there are certain numbers. So like four to seven is like a small family, a small group. Then like 10 to 20 is an extended family. Then 50 to 100 is your tribe. And he said at every level, those numbers, things change because the scale of sharing or talking changes. So it's called Dunbar's number. And I think that's exactly what I've, I've witnessed in companies. And I think one of the barriers is is keeping true to those values and that story as you get bigger. Because once you start having more people, you start having departments. Departments often become compartments and silos. And people start finding their own little niche and their own little fiefdom. And sometimes those values just suddenly get lost in, in the cracks. And I've seen that an, an awful lot. So I think trying to keep the, the story and the values at the centre of everything and making people sure people live those those values and understand that story. I think that's the main barrier and I suppose opportunity as well. Is that also why you know you're seeing some Starbucks? I, I think it's a great example of where yeah. you every time they are on a D course with the story that tells their customers and employees, they bring back Howard Schultz. They've done it again now. He's come back and he started. He's from day one. He starts to talk about listening and telling the stories he's hearing yeah, and how he then is going to address these stories if they're good or bad. He's very transparent. Is that typical what you see with when the founder leave a business? It's so hard to keep that, you know, seed yeah. of the story. No, it is. Um, it depends, again, as I say, how deeply embedded the story is in the culture, if it can survive the, you know, the transplant of having the leader go. Um, but I think also what's interesting about Starbucks, I'm writing the next book, book five next year, hopefully, on, on insight. So insight is about seeing the same thing in a different light or seeing something else that no one else has seen. So Starbucks, their insight was the third place. 
You know, there's the first place, which is where you live, the second place where you work, Starbucks will be the third place. And I thought what was interesting about that, it wasn't about coffee. I mean, a disclosure, I don't drink coffee. Sorry, everyone. Um, but it wasn't about, you know, we have great coffee, or it was actually the experience. Here's a place where you can meet and bump into people and have an idea. And I thought that was a brilliant insight at the time, and it's a great story about that's what Starbucks is essentially about. It's about a space where you can come, bump into people and chat and all those sorts of things. Um, and I think they've moved away from that. And obviously the pandemic, I think, you know, affected that as well. But I think coming back to the people and the stories of the people who go to Starbucks, I think that's, that's what the core of that brand has always been. And I think it should be. And I think the great thing about hospitality, which I know, as I say, both from a business point of view and a parental point of view, um, it's about people. You know, I know this is nothing, you know, nothing surprising or insightful. It's about people and the experiences they have. And if you can't make stories and anecdotes out of that, well, you're in the wrong business. Is there any hospitality businesses you would say are great storytellers? You have seen, you know, being really good at articulating that and live by it, you know, maybe even for decades. Um, I don't know if I can do this. I'll give a plug for a club I know in London called Homegrown. Um, I should, I'll be honest because I'm a, a brand ambassador, and I like I like Home House, which is the place that which was first set up. But Homegrown is specifically entre entrepreneurs, so again, maybe relevant to many of your listeners here. And what I like about them is that it's about the idea that if you are an entrepreneur and you're setting up a new business, what's really keen is just this idea of buzzing, of buzzing in and bumping into other people like you. People who are setting up companies, people you can learn from, not just about for investment purposes, but just to learn from. And since I've I've been associated with them and done talks and things there, I think that's a really great idea. They've absolutely understood. So they have lots of talks, they have events, and it's about promoting as many opportunities, not just for learning, but for accidental sort of ways of finding out new things. So I, I think they've done that really well because there are so many clubs in London. It's a really, you know, busy market. But I think firstly because they've identified that target audience specifically of, of new businesses and entrepreneurs. But secondly, they've got a really good focus on it. And all the stories they tell, all the people who tell their own stories of their business, they have a thing about rock stars, people who can like, you know, tell people how to set up businesses. You know, I think those are really great. And then I, I think also just in terms of restaurants, I mean, you look at some of the great chefs, and again, they naturally have a way of telling a story, you know, whether it's Hester Blumenthal or Gordon Ramsay or whoever, they've. They're a character, I talked a bit about character before, but so much of, of them is their story, where they come from, how they deal with people, how they work in restaurants. And again, yes, we're going to a, a restaurant to eat and have a fantastic meal, but but we are buying into that story, I think. And, and if you're thinking now, you're sitting out there, your founder, entrepreneur, of a hospitality business or any business, if you're listening into this, where, where, where should I start to improve my, you know, storytelling skills? Is there like a, a roadmap? You would say these are the, that's where you should start and go. You know, they can buy your book, of course, and have a read. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I think the first thing I would say is stop doing what isn't working. Stop trying to emulate these sort of management consultants and try and reduce everything to algorithms and metrics and numbers. Try, try and dig down to the deepest emotions that you're trying to create. So again, both in the storytelling books I've written, also in behavioral economics, human beings are far more influenced in our decision making 
by our emotions than we like to admit. We like to think we're all very rational and everything, but we're not. Um, it's a great quote that I, I borrowed from a man called David Eagleman. He says, we don't think the way we think we think, which I love. Um, because we like to think we think rationally, but we don't. A lot of things we think are emotional. So I think, for me, part of, of what they need to do is just look at, and I do this, I run this this workshop with clients, is just look at emotions and needs and feelings and personal anecdotes. If you're a person like um, Richard Branson or um, if you're one of the, the great chefs that I've talked about, you, you come ready equipped with a story and you're lucky. And I've worked with a number of companies where that's the case. You don't have, the story is there, you just have to bring it out. But if you haven't got a story, you need to find something that, that plays in that, in that sphere. And it's usually about emotions. It's usually about creating some sort of emotional rapport or emotional feeling. Again, the things I said about the, the Royal Albert Hall. And those things don't happen immediately, but you can work on them. But the main thing is to avoid sounding generic. Avoid sounding like you're everyone else in that sector. You know, whether it's a cafe or a hotel or a restaurant. Because when I do the work with brands like this, it's amazing how many cliches and conventions there are. They all look, everyone will say the same thing about the restaurant, about the hotel, or how do you do it? And as I said earlier, it may not be what you say, it may be how you say it. But how do you create something which is going to be distinctive? Because it's not distinctive, you're wasting your money. What about um, if you take like, Again, getting started with storytelling from an organization point of view, from a brand point of view, but is there any, you know, you know, benefit for me as the leader of the business actually being interesting in storytelling because, you know, we need to learn the financials, we need to learn how to manage team, to do marketing, but but storytelling we are yeah. very rarely trained in. Yeah, I um when I'm doing my training and, and, and speaking, I'll, I often work in sort of two branches of storytelling. So one is brand storytelling. So learning your brand, understanding what your brand can be, what we've talked about. The other is persuasive storytelling in presentations. And I get really, really uh, innovated about this because I think in schools, I think people should be taught how to present. Um, I think they should also be taught how politics works. Um, and what these things have in common And again, it goes back to my classical background. Um, I didn't study storytelling at university, but I did study something called rhetoric, um, which is the art of persuasion. But I learned very quickly in my business that if I tell people they're coming to a day on rhetoric, no one would come. So I use storytelling. <laughs> but rhetoric is about how do you persuade people? And it's not just about charts and numbers. In fact, it's probably not really about charts and numbers at all. It's about finding a story. It's about how you communicate, whether it's PowerPoint or not PowerPoint. And when I work with, with leaders, for want of a better word, a lot of what I do is presentation skills, rhetoric, and what I call the golden thread, which I haven't mentioned yet, which is something that runs through the books. Every presentation, every argument needs what I call a golden thread, something that runs through it so that the brain can hold on to it the audience's brain, but also the person who's delivering that presentation. Because too often, what we have is a list of facts. And again, we all know leaders, and I've seen them, who stand up and just talk. Fact, fact, fact. Number, number, number. Goal, goal, goal. And people just zone out. And I have an expression that I use called, uh, which I came across by accident, and it was a, a, a typing mistake. So I say that if we want to get people's attention, 
The first goal we have to achieve is to get through what I call attention spam with an M. So I was typing this and I typed it with an M rather than an N. But I've now sort of fallen in love with this as a term. So we like to think that our brain, everything goes from my brain into your brain, from my inbox into your inbox. But that's not how brains work. Most of what we read or communicate goes into what I now call attention spam. Because the brain can't retain everything. And most of the time, our brain goes, nah, not interested. So in terms of the persuasive rhetoric presentation side of things, I spend a lot of time in the books and training and everything else saying to people, OK, as a leader, you have to be able to persuade. So it's a combination of using these ideas from behavioural economics and emotions, but also some of the great tricks of storytelling. The magic number three, creating a headline, having a golden thread, making sure that you edit out as much as you possibly can. All those things are in the book, um, or both the books and training. And a good leader will probably know a lot of that automatically. But unfortunately, many leaders that I come across don't. <laughs> So we have to work on that. Does that also mean, because one of the things I've noticed, um, we come out of a pandemic where many leaders has been, you know, in the front line, been in the trenches using military <laughs> words. I'll let you off. Um, uh, but really been, you know, in the deep end, especially here in hospitality. And we've just been doers. And then suddenly we, we, we go into meetings uh, on, you know, gut feel or our experience, but we're not really thinking about what is what is this meeting about, how I'm going to show up, how I'm going to communicate, all these questions. It's very important to ask yourself if you really want to persuade people because you need to hear their side because often you as a leader maybe think you know the answer, but you don't really know the answer because you haven't listened. Because I guess great storytelling is also be a good observer and researcher. Absolutely. Um, storytelling is about finding and there was a, a great quote um, I came across in a book, American author called Saul Bellow, a uh, famous Chicago writer. And it, as a character, he called him a first-class noticer. And I thought, oh, I like that. So I've written about that in the next book. Um, we have to be first-class noticers, whether it's finding insight, whether it's working in a company or setting an example or being a leader. Um, so you're absolutely right. And I think during the pandemic, as with so many other things, I think we've ended up retreating a bit to sort of, as you say, doing and just getting getting through it, to be honest. But I don't need to say this. Everyone knows that, you know, a, a leader has to be an example. We've had you know examples of this recently in the political environment. Uh, so a leader has to set an example and has to lead from the front. And part of that is, is constructing stories. So if you look at, again, the, the, the literature of this, it's very clear. Some of the people who are highest, most highly rated as leaders are highly rated because they can share and tell and engage, I said engage, involve people with stories. And so I think for me, they, they all overlap. And some people, as I said before, are naturally, just naturally gifted at doing that, at talking, at listening, spinning stories. Some people often because, and I don't want to damn them here, often because they might be trained accountants or IT people or engineers, that's not where they feel comfortable. So I work with a number of companies and I'm trying to get them to speak a language that ordinary people can understand, not just engineers or pharmaceutical people. So their leaders have to be able to translate the technical, factual, rational, scientific stuff into stories which the uh, the whole organisation can buy into. 
Yeah, and I guess also understanding that the audience is of so many different people, the things in a different way, they, they learn in a different way. There's all those uh, things taken into account as well. And also different cultures. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, um, I, I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but one of the things that, we, because we all understand stories and we all understand heroes and villains and we all watch Stranger Things or Top Gun, um, that is a language that everyone can understand. You know, words, as we know, can divide people as much as unite them. But stories do seem to be something that work at a universal level as well. Yeah, and that's that's, that's super interesting. If you would say that um, coming back to, to you, if there was like a book, we can maybe keep it in storytelling. Besides your own books, you will give away nine out of ten times. What book would that be? I think that, I haven't read a lot of really good storytelling books, but um, there is a guy I think called John Wood who used to be... Um, I think he used to work on the BBC series EastEnders. Mm. So he's a writer, a proper writer. And he wrote a great book called Into the Woods. And I think as a great script writer and editor and TV person, that's the best book by a margin that I've ever read on in that sort of area. But if your audience are also interested in other books about human behaviour, I would suggest some of the books from Behavioural Economics, like Nudge. Yeah. By Thaler and Sunstein, or Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel yeah. Kahneman. Um, I think those those are not a bad place to start. But a lot of the books I read um, aren't marketing books. I think a lot of business books, I'm afraid, I find rather dull and rather repetitive. So I think some of the great ideas come from outside um, of business and marketing. So if that's not too critical. <laughs> no, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, there's a couple of people that has been talking on how they actually by reading about history have learned about, you know, better articulating their purpose and so on. The uh, yep. the Stoics we talked a bit about when you arrived, which is a totally different conversation where you can learn from them <laughs> and, you know, lots of self-help books today. Uh, you know, Stephen R. Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People really come from Marky, Marcus Aurelius' yeah. book, Meditations. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy goes all the way back to the yeah. Roman Stoics. So. so there is definitely books outside management books where you can get much more deep dive into this. What would you be uh, your top advice to leaders out there that want to use storytelling to accelerate their businesses with? I think just don't be afraid, I think is the first thing. And and don't be, don't be obsessed with the numbers and the, the figures and the sales and the metrics. That's part of the business. I'm not saying it, it isn't, that would be nonsense. But I think if you become obsessed with those criteria, those measurements, it can get in the way. So I think it's, it's really about understanding where the numbers and the figures and the metrics have to be, which you need, but then actually what is it that's gonna capture the soul and the spirit and the story of your company? And it may be looking at emotions, it may be looking at finding out again something that your brand can do or offer or a feeling it has that nothing else does but i think that's the the most important thing i'd i'd start with great great um tas so if people want to learn more about the work you do on storytelling and all the other things where, where's the best place to uh, find you and maybe come and see you even uh, yeah, if you look at Taz Tazgal, T-A-S-T-A-S-G-A-L, on LinkedIn, that's me. Uh, Tazwell Hill is the Twitter handle. Uh, that gives a clue where I live in North London. Um, and I do training for the CIM, the Chartered Institute of Marketing, so you'll find my courses there. 
also for the Market Research Society and, and all sorts of other uh, places. And I also just started doing the Guardian Masterclass, which again is happening globally. So um, on storytelling. So all those places are you, you can find me one way or another. Great. Thank you so much, Tess, for coming here and, uh, and give us a bit of an overview and insights into what great storytelling is and the power of this. And uh, I send you power and energy for transforming more people to tell better stories. Good. I hope I can see more of them in the future. Nothing would make me happier. Tess, wow, this was an amazing journey. Love the way you broke down the steps to powerful storytelling and made it clear that we as leaders need to think about how we tell stories better. If you want to learn more about storytelling, please tune in to episode number 113 with Carlin Postma on Binge Marketing. I really appreciate that you're listening in. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email at michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or via their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at advice at bizsimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charleston, who's the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find all the links in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick!